0: Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, team. That was a wonderful time of musical worship, as always. Good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it is a privilege, as always, to read and teach from the scriptures with you this morning. We are in week three of a series working through the book of Daniel. And so far in our story, we have been introduced to the book's four primary protagonists. We have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The latter three are better known uh, to us in kind of our understanding as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, primarily because they've been exiled to the great powerhouse, the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon. They were not worshipers of Yahweh, and so they did not get to keep their names that were all about the worship of Yahweh. But rather, Babylon was a polytheistic nation, which means they worshiped multiple gods centered around one particular god, the god Marduk. That's not really relevant. It's just fun to say. (laughs) God has already granted Daniel and his friends great favor among King Nebuchadnezzar and are now among his official court council as wise men. And this is where the plot thickens. The story continues on in chapter two. This is still very early on in King Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king. And this is significant because in a sense, he's still trying to figure out how to wield his power, how to act and how how to kind of assert his authority. And we're going to see that in a moment. But he has this dream. And he's very distraught by it. And what follows is a wild and outlandish narrative that leaves all the sages and wise men, including Daniel and his friends, in a life or death situation. So before we read together, let's just pause for a moment and pray. God of all wisdom, would you grant us insight and discernment as we read your word? hear your word, and live out your word. Teach us how to live as your faith-filled image-bearers through this passage. Draw us closer to the likeness of Jesus through it. Amen. So if you're following along, uh, if you have your Bibles or looking at the screen, it'll be Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 23 in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. I want to pause for just a brief second there. There's something unique and significant that happens right after this verse. So up to this point, um, the entire book of uh, Daniel in chapter 1 and up to verse 3 here, um, the book has been written in Hebrew, which is the language of Daniel and his friends. Now once we hit verse 4, the rest of the narrative, all the way up to the end of chapter 7, changes into another Semitic language, Aramaic, which is the language of Babylon, I believe this is significant. This is important. Um, You would never know this by by reading it, obviously, because we're reading it in English. But this is a subtly important thing that happens. It's the language of the nation that Daniel and his friends and and many others have been exiled to. In a way, it's the author's way of signaling to the exiled people that, hey, you're going to have to settle here a little bit. You're going to have to go and, and, you know, lay some roots in this foundation. You see that in in books like Jeremiah where they talk about doing this very same thing. And one simple way to do that is to speak the language of the people that you are surrounded with. Verse 4, then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replies to the, to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into piles of rubble. Nice guy. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied. They didn't quite get what he's asking. So they say, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, he's getting angry. I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know what you can interpret for it. And then I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king. There is no one on earth who could do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death, because even though they weren't there, Daniel and his friends were among the wise men. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact he asked the king's officer, Why? Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, This a little doxology here. It says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and season. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever had a dream so vivid that you wake up and even though you forget some of the details, you're still kind of shaken to your core? Ever had a dream like that? Yeah, I think most of us have. Maybe it involved a loved one's death or some kind of horror story type thing that happened in dream form. Now, in our household... I occasionally end up being the bad guy in Lindsay's dreams. Any, any husbands ever have that happen? And I don't, maybe she says, she says this happens to all of her girlfriends, so I don't know what's going on, but um, she'll, she'll wake up and it takes her like an hour to like get over it. She's like, don't come near me. Don't talk to me. I'm mad at you. <laughs> so I don't know how, but I need to learn to be a better dream husband to Lindsay so if y'all could pray for that, I would appreciate it. But today we are looking at really half of this narrative of this dream interpretation um, And we're not actually going to get to the interpretation today. We're going to be leaving you a little bit on a cliffhanger. Um, You can go ahead and read it. Please do. It's great to do that. But we're going to leave you primarily with this early section where we see the lead up to the interpretation. And we're going to look closely at what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, what happens to the wise men, what happens to Daniel. So today is a little bit less about dreams and more about the following question. What is the source of our wisdom? What is the source of our wisdom? It's a simple question, but there is so much to consider as we look at our three primary players, our three primary groups of people. We have Nebuchadnezzar, we have the wise men, the magicians, sorcerers, enchanters, astrologers, as they call them in this passage. And then we have Daniel and his friends. So three separate groups of people, that are all a part of this story. So Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream. It's that kind of core shaking dream where he—he's something bad is going to happen and he is worried, but he doesn't know what to do with it. It leaves him anxious and sleepless. In the ancient world, dreams were seen as far more significant than they are today. Whereas today, we might discern that our bad dream was because we had a spicy midnight snack or something kind of deep within our subconscious that doesn't really matter that much. Back then, dreams were often seen as a metaphor of our current circumstances. It could be a good or a bad omen of future events as well, especially for a king. If a king is going to have a a dream that kind of seems to be a bit foreboding, the king is going to be real worried about that. So when someone couldn't interpret the dream, they sent in the experts the scientists of the day who would come and use their breadth of knowledge to assign meaning to the dream. You can think of it kind of like today. We have uh, maybe not as much now, but you know, maybe a hundred years ago, uh, psychoanalysts were a big thing and they've they developed assigned meanings to dreams. You can Google, you know, I had this happen in my dream and it'll tell you kind of, oh, here's what that might mean. So if you, you know, had a dream where you're falling off a cliff and then you wake up and you're, you know, like freaking out, um, it might mean that something in your life is a bit unstable or, or you're feeling insecure in something in some area of your life. And, and that's kind of this psychoanalysis that is, has been popularized over the past couple hundred years, but was a big part of this scientific method in the ancient Near East. But dream interpretation both then and now is really an imperfect science. It's fraught with inaccuracy and exaggerated extrapolations. Even thousands of years ago, the king seemed to know this. So he devised a plan to ensure that his counsel, the counsel that he received uh, from his wise men was definitely going to be true and genuine. They would have to not only tell him the interpretation, but tell him the dream. To be clear, this is a completely unreasonable request. And also an unprecedented one. They're kind of like, no one has ever done this before. Dream interpretation was very normal, but to know the dream itself without him sharing, that was unheard of. Also, threatening to tear them limb from limb if they fail to succeed, also a little unheard of. The wise men were beside themselves, and they patiently, as patient as they can be because they're probably freaking out a little bit inside... They patiently protest, and they say in verse 10 and 11, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans. The last phrase kind of reveals a bit of their theology. The gods are distant and apparently don't really care to answer a question like this. So why did Nebuchadnezzar set up his request like this? Some scholars think that he might have forgotten a portion of the dream, which is common, you know, we wake up and we're kind of like, ah, I vaguely remember this happened, but it was much more vivid vivid when it was actually happening. Others think it was simply a clever way to weed out kind of the charlatans, the fakes, the frauds from the mix, from the midst. In all reality, it may have been a combination of both of those. Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us, likely forgot parts of his dreams, and he felt like this was really important. And he needed to know for sure who the real diviners are, so that there can be no mistake about what this dream meant. There's also this sense in which he knows, which he knows for sure that this is an unreasonable request. It's not like he's you know sitting there being like, "This is this makes sense." He basically is just saying, I'm not going to settle for anything less than the gods giving this answer. So where does the king's wisdom come from? Previous to this encounter, it probably came from these wise men, this, these wise uh, counsel. They would give their insights, and he would trust those insights. And then maybe they've recently given him reason to not trust <laughs> Maybe they uh, played a little fast and loose with interpretation and they uh, had failed him in recent months. It's almost as if King Nebuchadnezzar is realizing that this wisdom is not entirely solid. That the dream interpretation is subjective and fallible without divine interpretation or intervention. So he's having a moment where he finds himself on shaky ground. And I think based on his response, his outrage, his his vengeance, um, he's feeling a bit shaken. He's feeling a bit insecure. His source of wisdom also comes from within himself. You know, he's looking at himself and he's prideful and he's arrogant and vengeful. And in his own eyes, it was very fitting for him to do what he did, for them to do his bidding, and if they don't do it, sorry, you're done to him if his source of wisdom fails him they are deserving of death rather than humbly seeking insight he proudly demands his way or else as we hear about the king's source of wisdom it raises some questions for us do we put trust in ourselves or do we place possibly unhealthy trust on unreliable counsel? How many times have you gone to that one friend because, you know they're just your good friend, but maybe they give really terrible advice, but you keep going to them with their problems and taking their advice, and then it doesn't work out very well for you? I've done that before. It's not good. <laughs> Has your source of wisdom been tested or proven? Just some things to consider for your own life. What about the wise men? What they call the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers. Again, it's important to consider the role of these, uh, these ancient wise men. They were in many ways the scientists of the day. It's easy to look back you know, at this now and kind of scoff. But these guys had a lot of influence. They had a lot of clout, and for good reason. They were skilled at looking for signs in the stars They would look at kind of patterns within the livestock. They would look at weather patterns and all these different things. Some of it was superstitious to be sure, but also they were gathering empirical data or at least attempting to gather empirical data. And it was the kind of a really early version of what we would call now the scientific process. So dreams, however, are a little bit more subjective. And this is kind of where the problem comes in with with this story. So consider typical dream interpretations. We could use Joseph in in the book of Genesis as an example. In the latter portion of Genesis, Joseph similarly is exiled to a nation that is not his own. And while in prison, he's given the opportunity to interpret a dream. And we believe that God gave him the correct interpretation of that dream. But you could imagine someone, you know, the, the pharaoh or the king gives the dream and someone can kind of just like give uninterpretation—not the interpretation—but they can give uninterpretation. It's kind of like in uh, thinking of like grade ten English class when we had to read *Lord of the Flies*. Who had to read *Lord of the Flies*. A whole, yeah, a whole bunch of you. Yeah, um, and like you could imagine some of the uh, teachers—you know—they're they're telling you to write an essay about uh, like the thematic metaphors that are throughout the book, and then like someone just makes up something, and you're kind of like. The teacher's marking it like, ah, I never thought of that, but it's probably not real, but it's also kind of subjective. So I guess, <laughs> I guess I can't like mark them wrong for it, you know, cause it's an interpretation. It's not maybe what the author intended, but you, maybe you can still extrapolate something, right? You can do that with dream interpretations as well. And that's what I think the King was fearful of here, which is why he didn't ref- he refused to give the actual dream. The wise men have found their wisdom in their own intellect, in their own savviness. But the wise men's intellect has run out. They cannot interpret a dream that they do not know. Their source of wisdom has failed them, and the wise men now face death. In our modern kind of post enlightenment era, it is easy for us to pride ourselves on our knowledge. We have so much of it at our literal fingertips. We can even claim to have higher knowledge that few else have through accessing higher levels of education. And I'm in favor of that, that's good, but you can get a little prideful of it. Or even secret knowledge that has been gained through some maybe less traveled parts of the internet. And that has been highly problematic, especially these past 18 months. Everyone thinking they can be experts. I'm not an expert in a lot of things. And I venture to guess a lot of us here listening are not either. None of these are outright bad things. But as Alex said in previous weeks, good things can so easily become God things, yeah? So we have two groups of people whose wisdom, whose source of wisdom has failed them. And now they're in trouble. The king's dream cannot be interpreted. And the wise men are now facing execution. So what about Daniel? In reference to Daniel, uh, there's a wonderful scholar by the name of Wendy Witter, and she says wisdom is finding the right way to do the right thing. Wisdom is finding the right way to do the right thing. And that is precisely at the heart of the matter throughout throughout much of the book of Daniel, and especially here. So Ariok, the commander of the guards, he goes to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and in the face of death, Daniel is calm and collected. He asks a question. It's a good question. It's an important question. He says, why is the king acting like this? Why has the king issued such a harsh decree? But more important than the question itself is how he asks the question. It says in verse 14 that he asked the question with wisdom and tact. Wisdom And tact. He found the right way to do the right thing. His response to authority matters here and it matters for us today. He spoke out against injustice, but himself did not do injustice. The right thing, the right way. Rather than rage or judgment or jumping to conclusions about King Nebuchadnezzar. He chose curiosity. He chose to ask questions and had tact and respect for authority, even authority that did not deserve it. In verse 16, Daniel was then afforded the opportunity to go before the king and ask for some time. And he was given it. What's amazing is that earlier in the narrative, the wise men go before the king and they're like, just give us a little time. And he's like, no, 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 no. You are just trying to stall. You are just trying to, you know, bide your time. But he grants it to Daniel. The only thing that we can infer from this is that Daniel's attitude, his wisdom, and his tact gave him favor among the authority set before him. Now, it's important to interject, this is a narrative, this is explaining what's happening, it's not giving specifically like a a method for how we ought to act, you know, it's not as if um, it's a formula, so if you do all these things, then authority will always respond kindly towards you, that's not the way life works. We'll see that in the following chapters, That, that is not always the way it works, even in the book of Daniel. Using wisdom and tact is not some utilitarian means to an end, but rather it is faithful living, what God's people are called to. We are called to faithfulness. We are called to entrust God to our circumstances, regardless of the outcome, amen? But here in this circumstance, God grants Daniel favor. So what does he do with what he's been granted? What is the first thing that Daniel does? He runs back to his house, and he prays. Daniel's source of wisdom is God. For him, fidelity to God matters above all else. But Daniel also trusted his friends. In verse 17 and 18, we see Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They come together to commit themselves to prayer. They get on their knees, and they pray for mercy. They plead with God For God to reveal the dream to Daniel, and they then just entrust it. And they go to bed. (laughs) And in the middle of the night, in the 11th hour, so to speak, the mystery is revealed to Daniel. Now, there's a lot for us to consider here with respect to Daniel and his friend's approach. You know, Daniel had been given this gift of, of wisdom and understanding. We see that in chapter one, but he did not do this work by himself. This is critical. He knew that he needed God, first and foremost, and the people of God to surround him in prayer and to give him insight. What an incredible consideration for our own life. Gifting can really easily run away from us. When someone is highly gifted in something, it can be really easy to go it alone, just to do your own thing to trust oneself and the gift rather than the giver of the gift. It's been one of the blessings at Courtright here is having so many people that are gifted in so many areas and to utilize that collectively. It's not just one person. Even our sermon planning is done in, uh, in concert with Alex and myself and Allison, and it's really beautiful the way that we get to support each other, pray for each other, and give each other insights, because God has wired us all differently. But when someone goes it alone... It can be disastrous, especially in the community of God's people where we're all called to have roles to play. No one is more important than the other. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Every part needs one another. Daniel knew this. Daniel knew that he needed his fellow worshipers of Yahweh to support him. Yes, God revealed the mystery to Daniel. But behind every gift of prophecy, of dream interpretation, and knowledge is community. That's the bedrock. So God reveals the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And how does Daniel respond? Does he run to the king immediately to tell him? We haven't gotten there yet. Does he gloat over the other sages, kind of saying, ha I've got it. And you guys don't. No, he doesn't do either of those things. What is the first thing that him and his friends do? They praise. They praise with this beautiful doxology that I want to read again because it's just, I, it's poetry. It's wonderful. It says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. That's important. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So he gives all the glory, all the honor, all the praise to God. He recognizes that none of this is possible without God. All of it is a gift. The central point of this first section of Daniel 2 is that what Nebuchadnezzar was asking for is impossible. The diviners could not do it. Nebuchadnezzar could not do it. Daniel could not do it. But God, choosing Daniel as a vessel, reveals the mystery. The wisdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the diviners and sages were built on a precarious house of cards The wisdom of God, however, is a firm foundation. So can we then consider today where we draw our wisdom from? Where are you drawing your wisdom from? What sources? What are you reading and viewing that is informing and shaping your worldview? It matters today. It matters more than ever. But it's worth examining these things, not simply in silos alone on your phone or tablet or computer, but in community and with God's help. I realize we're being left on a little bit of a cliffhanger this week. And again, I would encourage you to go ahead and read and see what happens in the story. God has revealed the mystery of the dreams to Daniel and him and his friends. Praise God together. But we're going to have to wait, not just next week because it's Thanksgiving. We're doing a one-off and Allison will be unpacking the rest of the week after. But in that waiting, what we're going to do in just a moment for those of us in person here is we're going to be able to come to the table and experience the power of the cross. We are reminded that like the wise men and sages and similar to Daniel and his friends, we are dead in our sins until God reveals the mystery of Jesus. There are so many sources of wisdom for us to put our hope in these days, in political figures, in experts, in ourselves. But true wisdom is when we look beyond ourselves and in the temporal and we turn our eyes upon Jesus, who is our truest and greatest source of wisdom As we close, I want to read these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It would be a familiar passage to some of us, but it really solidifies this. For the message of the cross, it says it's not wisdom, it says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. All of the sages and wise men and all of these people, they can only bring so much to the table. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world thought its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Thank you Lord for this incredible truth. Thank you for teaching us what it is to be wise in your way. May you help us as we learn what it is to be wise. May you help us as we learn what it is to put our hope and trust fully in you. And now as we come to the table for communion, would you meet us at the foot of the cross, a source of foolishness to the world, but our hope in this world and the next. Amen.